My absence last week demonstrates that it is great to be part of a good team. And I was blessed to have Keone do such an admirable job of picking me up when I was horizontal. <laughs> Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you are a great king. And Father God, I pray that indeed you would help us to behold your name, to behold your majesty, to see you for who you are. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are high and exalted this very moment. We praise you, Lord God, that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ, you are Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Father, we pray that now you would move and work in us, among us, through us, in spite of us, by the power of your spirit, Lord, to declare and to demonstrate your grace, mercy, and love to a world that is hurt and broken. Father God, may we be your hands and feet. May we love as you love. May, Father, we forgive as you have forgiven. May we serve as you have served. May we encourage and lift up and bring life in your name. Father God, we thank you that you are who you say we are. We thank you that you are the same yesterday and today and forever. And we pray, Lord God, that we would rest in that even now. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Well, maybe you've heard this story, maybe you haven't. One time in upstate New York, a man by the name of Donald Drusky took God to court. See, Drusky was far fired from the USX Corporation, and he blamed God for failing to rectify the wrong that was done to him when he was fired in 1968. After 1968, Drusky began what turned into a 30-year lawsuit versus his company, the USX Corporation, for what he called a wrongful termination. And at the end of those 30 years, he then decided, fine, well, now I'm going to take God to court. And that's what he did. The suit reads, quote, The defendant, God, is the sovereign ruler of the universe, and took no corrective action against the leaders of his church and his nation for their extremely wrongdoings, which ruined the life of Donald S. Drusky. For damages, Drusky asked for the return of his youth, the skill of a great guitarist, the resurrections of his mother, and a pet pigeon. Why not, right? Drusky hoped that God would fail to appear in court, allowing him to win the case by default. Drusky's case was declared frivolous and thrown out of court in Syracuse, New York. Now that story probably sounds unbelievable. And it's unbelievable, but it actually happens. And so it happened, and yet at the same time, it is in fact unbelievable. Taking the living God to court in the hopes of winning. And it sounds rather unbelievable who would think to take the sovereign ruler of the universe to court until we step back and consider this text and consider the world as we know it. Because I think if we are honest with ourselves, there are times in which, like the Israelites in Malachi's day, we look at what's going on in perhaps just our personal lives, perhaps the greater world around us, and we begin to stand in judgment of God. 
And we begin to make assumptions about who he is and what he is doing because of either what he has done or because of what we believe he has failed to do. If you were around, you may have remembered, you know, in the week after 9-11, it was more than one popular paper that featured the headline, Where Was God on 9-11? We've seen the same things. I can remember the cover of Time magazine after one of the tsunamis that hit East Asia saying, Where was God? It's a rhetorical question which is definitely begins implying a response. Is that right? Same way I remember reading the interview with Charles Templeton. You may recall Charles Templeton was a best, the best friend and fellow evangelist with Billy Graham many years ago. Uh, Billy would have said at the time that Charles was the more gifted evangelist, the more gifted public communicator. And at, at one point in time, they, they had a falling out. Charles left that service. He then left the Lord, left the church, and there was an interview with him and Lee Strobel, and Lee asked him rather pointedly, why do you not believe in God? And, and, he, said, and he said, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why God, even if he exists, is not good. Alzheimer's. That's the proof that God is not who the Bible declares him to be. It's so very easy for us to bring God to court. And that is exactly what we see the nation of Israel doing here in the book of Malachi. In fact, Malachi has been compared by many scholars to something of this, a courtroom drama where we see these accusations being leveled. And so in light of that, three things we're going to see this morning is one, the complaint of the plaintiff. Two, the response of the defendant and third and finally, the verdict of the just judge. One, the complaint of the plaintiff. Verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is this God of justice? It's really a withering statement that God makes, isn't it? You have wearied me with your words. And some of you can relate to that. You ever hear something that someone says and you've heard it once and, you, and it bothered you and you heard it again and it bothered you a little more and, and it just kind of kept going and it was like a snowball coming downhill, picking up speed and picking up mass and size and you heard it again and again and again and finally just said, I can't even listen to this anymore. I am tired with, of what you're saying. You've made me weary. And that's what God is saying here. He's looking down on this collective mass of Israel and saying, I'm wearied with these accusations. I've heard you talk about them on the road. I've heard you talk about them at your dinner table. I've heard you talk about them when you're there hanging out with your friends, when you're at work, when you're in the field, when you're at school. I've heard these accusations again and again and again, and you've got me so tired. And God's using an anthropomorphism. He's not, he's not really tired. He's using language that we can understand to say, this is how you have made me feel with this constant accusation. You've made me weary with your nagging and your criticism and your fault 
finding. Let me pause there for a minute. Because I think that's, this is actually a remarkable thing. If you've been with us, we've been talking about the nation of Israel. And we've compared it to this barren tree in Malachi's day. Here in the 4th century B.C., we've said the nation of Israel is like a barren tree. It's there before this great grandeur of God, but it's, it's lifeless. And it's not offering God any good fruit. And here this barren, lifeless tree is, and they are accusing the living God. I, mean, I, just, I just loved I can't feel like I can't do justice to how it was put in what we just saw. How have you loved us? Where is this God of justice? How have we despised your name? The barren tree is standing in judgment of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the God of angels' armies, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the God who is just, holy, perfect, loving, who never lies, who is ever faithful, who never lets us down. This barren, lifeless tree is calling to judgment the God who created all of the beautiful fish that are there underneath the waters in the barrier sea, the, the, the very God who's named all the stars in the sky. And what's scary to me about that then, it shows us how terribly self, how terribly unself-aware we may become. That here it is possible for us as men and women living this side of eternity to, I think, stand in the place of judging God without realizing who we are. I think if Israel realized that they were a barren tree, they might have responded differently. And in many ways, it becomes a, a mark of maturity for us to say, do we look at ourselves as the Lord looks at us? Or are we like Simon in the American Idol? You ever you remember watching American Idol? And like, it seemed like once a season, you'd get that person who came in and they, they were really fired up and someone else on the stage was nice to them. And finally, Simon would just look at them and he would say, Did, has anyone outside of your family <laughs> ever told you that you were gifted in this way. And it sounded harsh, but sometimes I sat there and thought, thank you that someone finally told them. One of the greatest marks of maturity is being aware of where you are strong, where you are weak, and where you need to grow. I am not afraid of the person who says, hey, this is my, t this is my struggle, this is what the Lord needs to do in me. I am afraid of the person who thinks that they are remarkably fruitful when instead they are a tree that is withering and fractured. It is all because it's only when we become aware of who we are apart from Christ, when even once we are in Christ become aware of, of where we are strong and where we are weak, that then we can grow and mature and produce good fruit for the glory of God. In some ways, it's a really good question to ask people, especially to ask people that will be honest with you. Perhaps even to ask people that you don't get along with great, because they may really be honest with you. And they may not tell you what you want to hear, but they may tell you what's true, and God wants you to hear. 
It's a dangerous place to call God into the courtroom while thinking that you've got it all figured out. We really see two parts of their accusation. The first, we see that they're assaulting God's character. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in him. It's amazing. They are accusing God, and in their accusation, they're demonstrating that they don't know a thing about him. He delights in evil. In in the ancient world, just as easily today, it's very possible for us to talk as if we know who God is and to use perhaps Christian language. And then, though, under, under the veneer of that Christian language, it becomes clear that we don't really know who we are talking about. We don't know his nature. We don't know his character. We don't know his will. But we can say God and we can say Jesus, and, and yet we can mean something very different than he would have us mean. The scriptures say that God is holy. He is morally perfect. It is against his very nature to enjoy evil or to delight in evil. God has never sinned and God never will sin. We see that particularly in the work of Christ. Jesus didn't sin when his brothers doubted him and made fun of him as if he was not the Messiah. He didn't sin when the devil tempted him in the wilderness. He didn't sin when they made fun of him on the cross and the soldiers punched him and crushed the crown into his head. He didn't sin when the disciples doubted again and again and again. He didn't sin when they fled from him. He didn't sin when Peter denied him three times. God in the flesh never sinned. God does not sin, nor does he delight in sin. And to accuse him of that is to fundamentally misunderstand who he is. Second accusation, they say, is they assaulted his justice. Where is this God of justice? You get the sense they're saying, God, you're not doing your job. Did you take a nap? Did you punch the clock? Did you leave for the day? Did you decide to change? Did the justice thing not work out? And now you, you know, you turned over a new leaf? Because we don't see you. It's a question that's actually easy to ask. You only look, the Israelites, here they were living in the land of Israel at the end of the Babylonian captivity. And things had not turned out the way they had wanted the way they thought they should. They were not experiencing the economic prosperity or the national power that they had under David or Solomon. God had made a number of promises through earlier prophets, and some of them had come true, and some of them had not yet come true. They had rebuilt the temple, but it wasn't as magnificent as the first one. They are the people of God by virtue of their birth, and they presumed that this means they would be blessed regardless of their faith response. It's amazing how we can fall into this place of expecting a quick and readily discernible chain between cause and effect. Because here they are, they are thinking, hey, there's a lot of wicked people running around. Notice how they didn't put themselves in that equation. But there's a lot of wicked people running around, and things are going good for them. You know, they're getting raises. They're getting promotions. They're having lots of children. It seems like, it, in some ways, we might even say it seems like it can pay to be wicked. 
And, and so you can see this moral quandary this is creating for them. And, and it leads them to this conclusion, well, where is this God of justice? I guess he's not here. And, and that's because we expect this quick and readily discernible chain between cause and effect. Someone sins in some way, we expect punishment to come with a big pink neon light five minutes later saying, this happened because they did that. Someone has, a, has an act of obedience. Within 60 seconds, we, we expect some type of blessing to come with a little bubble box saying, they got this raise because they did this. Dot, dot, dot. That's what we expect by nature. We expect it unconsciously. And we struggle when either judgment or blessing appears slow in coming. And it is all too easy for us to take slowness as a sign of the absence of God's justice. The, pro we, the problem is that we assume that we can see justice when it comes. We forget that we might not want that same standard applied to us. We fail to recognize that God doesn't change in both his mercy and his justice are a sure foundation than the Rocky Mountains. Think about it for a minute. We don't often see a quick chain within five minutes of cause and effect in the scriptures themselves, do we? We don't see it in the scriptures themselves, but for some reason we expect it in our lives, in the world, and we struggle when it doesn't happen right away. I mean, the gospel writers in the gospel of John, they tell us that Judas regularly stole from the money bag. That that was like his, you know, for three years, Judas is traveling with Jesus. And it's not as if Judas just went downhill in the last week of Jesus' life. The entire three years, Judas is traveling with Jesus. He is stealing from the money that people give to support the gospel ministry. And Jesus still eats with him and ministers with him praise with him, justice comes, and it comes surely. But it did not even in that sense come immediately because God in his perfect providential plan had something else in mind. You see it in the life of Saul, right? Here Saul is. God raises Saul up to be king. God gives Saul these great promises. Then you get, you know, kind of, I think, midway through Saul's, the, his biography, and he goes and he offers an offering that he is not authorized to offer, a sacrifice that he's not authorized to offer. And Samuel comes in, and Samuel proclaims the judgment. Hey, the, the kingdom is going to be ripped away from you now. You're not going to be the king. But for a long period of time, Saul goes on and he remains the king. He tries to kill David several times. He takes a spear, tries to nail him to the wall several times. He's hunting David in the wilderness. Over the course of years, God had proclaimed justice and judgment. But in his perfect providence, there, there was a period of time before it fully came. We see that in the scriptures we have to remember that that is how it works in our lives as well. It is easy for us to grow weary ourselves in a fallen world full of injustice, 
It's easy for us to grow weary waiting for justice. But let us not allow our weariness to question God's faithfulness, his character, or his will. As we look around at everything from ISIS to Boko Haram to the boss who bullied us, to the trusted friend who ruined our reputation, to the person who stole from us or discredited from us or ruined our rental property through their intentional negligence or defrauded our company. We must rest in the fact that God will bring justice. It is in his very nature and he does not change. Verse 6 For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. When we look in the scriptures, we see from creation to new creation a consistent pattern of God working through both truth and grace. He always has them, and he always will. You see him give truth and grace in the garden after the fall. It's, it, he, he judges them for their sin. He gives them grace in sewing them clothes. And I would actually argue it's grace that he throws them out of Eden so that they are not allowed to live forever in the midst of their sin and their separation from God. Truth and grace. We see it all through the Old Testament. You see it through all the prophetic literature. Truth, grace, justice, mercy. And we see it in the fullness of Jesus Christ who said, I've come with truth, full of grace and truth. Here the people are questioning God's character and searching for his justice. And God has a response. Number two, the response of the defendant. God responds with a promise of purification and judgment. Verse one, behold, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way for me. You know, if we, if we read the text really closely, and if we, we had a little more time, you'd see there's actually, there, there's several people that are being talked about in these verses. And we're, so we're going to go through this very fast. Who is the first messenger? Well, there's a clear connection between three, chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 4, verse 5. You see them open exactly the same way. Behold! I will send you Elijah the prophet. In 3.1, we're told that the messenger is going to prepare a way before the Lord. If you're familiar with either the Gospels or the Old Testament, you probably find yourself going to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So the first messenger that's being talked about is Elijah. They are looking forward to the coming of this messenger, this this prophet that is going to prepare the way for the Messiah, who is then going to come suddenly to his temple, the Lord of hosts. Here the people are saying, God, where are you? And if we're honest, sometimes that's exactly what we've said. That is exactly what I have said. Where are you? I don't see you. I don't feel you. Where are you? And the response is, oh, I'm coming. I'm going to come. But before I come, I am sending someone else. Elijah is going to come. 
But he is not the only one who is going to come. Who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming. He's pointing forward. He's pointing forward to the work that Christ is going to accomplish. And Jesus does, we know, come. But by the word suddenly, if, you, if you're in the, the Hebrew, it, it doesn't imply like immediately. It implies unexpectedly. And that's in fact exactly what we see Jesus do in Luke chapter 2. He comes suddenly, unexpectedly to the temple. Jesus is going to purify his people so that their worship will be pleasing to him. They need to be purified. You know, there is both a conviction and a freedom here. I think it's convicting because he's looking at the people of Israel. He's looking at us. And he's saying, you are so barren in your faith that you need my help. You cannot do it of yourselves. And on one level, that sounds remarkably hard and convicting. And on the other level, it is the most freeing thing that you will ever hear. Because he says, you can't do it but I'm going to do it for you. He doesn't say purify yourself. He doesn't say refine yourself. He says, I'm going to come and I am going to give you what you need. He's like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. You know, I'd encourage you this afternoon to maybe hop online and, and Google refiner's fire. What does it look like to get refiner's fire? And it might take you a few minutes. I confess, first time I said, what, what does refiner's fire look like? I got, the first click I got was how to get Kylie Jenner's lips. <laughs> and I thought, I feel like I'm in the wrong place. Um, but if you persevere, you will get the picture of a, re, of, of, of a metal worker there. And you'll, and you'll see what it's like to see a metal worker there in, in the foundry with the heat and the flames going as they're trying to create the, the kind of metal that you'd make a ring out of, gold or silver. And you'd see they take the metal, and, and if they just fashioned the ring from the metal right there, it would be impure. It wouldn't be clean. Its very nature almost needs to be changed. They, they have to heat it so hot that it melts away the dross and the impurities. And, and, and you see, once it gets hot enough, they'll just melt right off there into the fire. And, and then you will have this gold and this silver that is valuable, that is beautiful, that has been purified. Similar concept happens with Fuller's Soap. One Fuller writes, quote, Before material can be used for a garment, it is necessary to first to free it from the oily and gummy substances that are part of its fiber. This was done 
First, washing the material with a cleansing substance. The material was then washed free from the alkali by many changes of clean water or by boys running and treading on it as it laid in a stream after being treated. There's a picture. And, and, in my, and we have, we, we, my wife, she's, she's made things where she's done this to shoes and, or slippers. And it's amazing how when you fill something, it completely changes. The texture changes. The feel of it changes. The size even changes. You're, you're changing its nature. And so here, here the, the prosecution is arguing, where is this God of justice who seems to delight in evil? And God's response is, oh, I'm coming. I am coming. And I am going to come to give you what you don't think you need, but you do need and that you can't do for yourself. Because I am the same yesterday, today, and forever, and I have always been a God of grace and truth. And I'm coming to purify a people for myself. Because it reminds us that we have a sin problem. We have a purity problem. Isaiah says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. We have all wandered our own way. The psalmist writes, man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. David writes, in iniquity did my mother conceive me. In sin did she give birth to me. David is writing and says, before I cried my first cry, I was a sinner in need of a savior. I didn't have to be taught wrong. I didn't have to be taught about good and bad. I didn't have to learn how to sin. I was a sinner in the womb. And I was a sinner when I was born in, from the womb. And I was a sinner the first time I opened my eyes. I was a sinner by nature before I became a sinner by choice. But I'm both. And, and in this, we see, in this text this morning, this concept of purification, we see the difference between religion and Christianity. Because religion thinks that you just need a quick rinse and not Fuller's soap. Religion teaches us that, yeah, you know, we're basically good, but there's a little dirt on the outside, and if we can just wash that away with our good works and our actions, we'll be all set. And that does not fit with this concept of being refined in the fire, being tread on in the cleansing water of a mountain river. Religion says I need to do something in order to make myself pure and holy and clean and to earn God's favor. It is terribly debilitating. Religion makes us think that we're not so bad off to start out and it puts all of the burden on us to change. It weakens our understanding of the depth of our sin, and it gives us a whole lot more credit than we deserve. Religion sounds like the Academy Awards speeches did last week. You walk away, all you, all you hear is, you need to do this, and do this, and do this, and do this, and care about that. And if you just do that repeatedly again and again and again and again, you'll be right with a living God. That's what religion says. Religion is the Tower of Babel. Let us work our way up to God that we can meet him in the heavens. 
Christianity says we, we don't have to work our way up. We can't work our way up. But God has come down. And Christianity does not focus on what we have to do, but what God has done in Christ. And it is terribly burdensome and remarkably freeing all at once. Because Christianity says that I need God to do something in me to make me pure because of myself I'm a complete mess. I can't get rid of the dross of my sin on my own. I can't purify myself on my own. I can't scrub it away no matter how hard I try, no matter how many good works I do. I set out to do good works and then I find out I'm doing it just to, so people can see me and think I'm good. So I can check some moral checkbox and think that I have arrived. I can't, Christianity says, I can't make myself good from the outside in. I need to be changed from the inside out. I need the refiner to melt away every sin that I have ever done by what I've said or thought or by what I have failed to do. I need the purifier to wash me clean. Christianity says, we are a filthy mess, blessed with a gracious God who does not give us what we deserve, but who instead gives us grace. We can't offer our praise to him to make ourselves pure. Do you see that in the text? Religion says, worship him to make yourselves pure. And here in the text, Christianity tells us, no, I need to purify you so that your worship will be pure. You don't worship me to make yourself right with me. You ask me to purify and refine you, and then I will make your worship correct and pleasing. We ask him to make us pure, to cleanse us, to refine us, to save us, to set us free. That our worship may bring him pleasure. Where are you at this morning? Are you ready to ask the Lord of hosts, the God of truth and grace and love and justice to refine your heart, to wash you and make you clean. There is not a sin that man can conceive of that the blood of Christ cannot wash away. There is nothing that you can do can even imagine that Jesus Christ cannot save you from if you will come to him and say, here I am, save me, my Lord and my God. There isn't a sin that the refiner can't melt away. The scriptures say that God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might have the righteousness of God. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have all gone our own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Malachi is looking forward to the day when Jesus, the messenger is going to come. And then the Lord of hosts is going to suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, Jesus, is going to refine and purify his people and cleanse them from their sin. He's going to purify and he is going to judge. And every person on this planet will receive one or the other. They will receive purification or judgment. Verse 5, then I will draw near to you for judgments. 
I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Plaintiff is saying, where is he? He is not who he says he is. And God says, yes, I am, and I am on the way. I am coming. And it's remarkable when you see this list of sins he's going to judge, which I wish we could tease out if we had more time. But you notice you look at that list, look at the sins. I think there's six of them that are put together. We've got not, not fearing the Lord, sorcery, adultery, and then we have not giving fair wages to a hired worker, not treating the sojourner fairly, not caring for the orphan and the widow. And I think this is a remarkably powerful list of sins to link together. Because especially here we are in an election season, so perhaps I'm thinking of it in this way, that we in the world, whether we are in Christ or not, we tend to separate things into man-made categories. And so we have, you know, kind of the sins that conservatives often talk about, whether you're Christian or not, but, you know, kind of the, 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 the traditional sins that we look down on, like adultery, committing sorcery. And then sometimes way over here, you know, we have the pro- sins that progressives, whether they're a Christian or not, tend to talk about. Denying justice to the sojourner or the refugee. Not caring for the orphan and the widow. Not giving the hired worker wages. I remember when, when my wife and I, the t- town, one of the towns we lived in in Fairfield, the average, the average median income of the town at the time we were there in 2004 was $117,000 a year. That was the average income then. And the average house value was through the roof. And I remember here we were there, and our, the next door neighbor came to me one day because he saw me out, you know, huffing it, working outside and doing some yard work. And it was clear that this man made a fortune. And he came to me one day, and he said, hey, you know what? I don't know why you're bothered to do with that. And I'm, I'm saying it the way he said it to capture the effect, so forgive me. He said, you know, I just go down to Stanford, and I can get a couple Mexicans, and they'll do this for $10 an hour. So you don't have to be bothered. You want to go in with me on it? We can split it, you know, $5 an hour each. And it's amazing to me that the living God, we tend to set, we have groups where we'll talk about one sin, but often, in, you know, in, in the flesh, we don't talk about groups that don't talk about the other category. And we have people that talk about this category of sin, but they don't often talk about that category of sin. And here God levels the boom against sin in general, big S, and he blends the categories so that none of us are without excuse. And he says, I'm coming, coming to judge sin. Whether your sin is that you have committed sorcery and cast spells or whether it is you've taken advantage of a day laborer and not paid them a living wage that you could afford to pay them. He's going to come and judge the person who lies and commits adultery as surely as the person who harms the sojourner. Judgment is coming. That is God's response. Here they are looking out at the world around them, feeling so terribly weighed down by the injustice that indeed they do see. And God is saying it's not always going to be this way. Sin is going to be dealt with in every person on the planet. 
It's a question of whether or not they are purified or they are judged. The wrath of God occasioned by sin is going to fall. And it is either going to fall on us or it is going to fall on Jesus in place of us. And so the question is, will we respond like Shannon's character did in what we saw 20 minutes ago and say, I come in repentance and faith. Save me. Purify me. Give me life. I repent of my sins, God. You might not even know all the sins you've committed when you repent of them, and that's really okay. I remember getting saved and starting after I repented and reading the Bible and thought, oh my goodness, I've done this my whole life and it's wrong. Well, I guess I've got to add that to the list of things that now I am trying to walk in repentance with. That's okay. Judgment is going to come. Is today the day where you're going to say, Lord, here I am. Save me. I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I thank you that you are the great purifier, the great refiner. Take me as I am and change me from crown to toe. Finally, the verdict. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. That day is coming and shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But you who fear my name, for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out like calves leaping from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded them at Horeb for all of Israel. There are times in life when we either look at what's going on in our lives or we look at our town or our family or our country and we say, what's the point? The righteous suffer, the wicked prosper. What's the point? It really doesn't seem to matter. I see good people who love their families getting cancer at 35 and I see people who are just a train wreck and hurt everyone in their path, who are making a fortune and living to 92. What's the point? It's easy for us to get there, even as the people of Israel have gotten there. And here in chapter 4, the just judge says, look around now, take a deep breath, and realize that this is not what it's going to be for eternity. There is going to be a moment when I, the God who has never changed, is going to return. And I am going to heal this broken world. And I am going to set it right. And I am going to punish sin. And I am going to purify a bride fitting for myself. And I'm going to wipe away every tear from your eyes. And there will be no more mourning, nor crying, nor tears, but laughter. And you will be like calves leaping for joy. Have you ever seen a calf leap for joy? i got to confess to you, it, it is a remarkable experience. I remember there was a six-month period of time where he true confession. I was a vegan for a six-month period of time. And I'm going to get a lot of grief for this. 
And I can remember, you know, the testimony of the vegans often is, don't think, I mean, I've read this, don't think there are cows out there just dancing in the meadow and calves leaping around, you know. And then we moved to Montana, and right across the street from where we lived was a couple hundred head of cattle. And we'd often go running down the country lane. And I got to take one of the most remarkable things I have seen in my entire life is as I'm running down the lane, seeing these calves leaping with me on the other side of the fence. You'll get these calves. They, I mean, they're calves. They probably weigh what I weigh. But here they are just bounding and bouncing. I don't know how it's anatomically possible. But you'll see them just leaping. And, and there is this expression on their face even of sheer joy. And the whole time you're thinking, I don't have the heart to tell them where they're going. Because <laughs> the one that would suffer would be me. <laughs> it is breathtaking to see calves leap for joy and dance and play in a field with a mountain backdrop as if there is not a care in the world. And that is the picture that Jesus says he is going to come and give to his people who call upon his name. He doesn't minimize what you're going through right now. But he tells you, don't lose perspective. Don't lose the perspective of who I am or the perspective of time. There is going to be a day when you are going to be dancing in a green field in my presence with not a care in the world and a vision of pure vision of my glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that this is the work that you have made possible through the cross of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to celebrate that work now in communion and to glorify you. I pray, God, that you would draw us to yourself, that we would rest in the work of Jesus Christ, not in our works and not in our performance but in his. In Christ's mighty name, amen.